You are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing Amor Toll's A Gentleman in Moscow. And in particular, we are going to be discussing the first half or so of book three. It goes through about page 247. Ian just disappeared and he is back again that was uh that was a little trippy sorry i meant to mute my microphone because i was going to sneeze at you and then i muted my video and it startled me and the sneeze went away <laughs> that's, that's how that went also you can't mute oh, a video a new, let's move on <laughs> it's, a, it's a new it's a new form of uh it's a new uh test case for how to get rid of get rid of a sneeze but also maybe it does work to scare someone the old wives tale which, ironically, I've never heard a wife say it's always a dad. Anyway, we are here to discuss <laughs> this this section of this Amor Tolls book in which years pass. Our friend, the Count, begins working for the restaurant. Nina leaves and returns and leaves again, leaving with the Count a guest. There is um, references to historical events that happen. A few uh, strangely humanizing moments for Stalin, and um, quite a bit of uh, of cooking and craftsmanship in, and knife in a variety of ways. Knife juggling, and, in, including knife juggling. Yes, I'm going to talk about all of that, or at least some of that. But first, Ian, how's it going? Great, great. I really enjoyed this section. You no longer have to sneeze. Nope, I don't have to sneeze. We're all good. This was a this was a this was a fun read. Although I I left it with a question. What exactly is the conflict as it's changing now in this part of the story? In the first half of part three, wasn't nearly as obvious to me what the struggle for the count actually is. Um, I have I have questions about that, but it was a fun read. Well, good thing that you came to this particular conversation then, because we're here for questions. And I'm going to write that one down along on my little notepad here while Heidi tells us how she's doing. I am doing great. Um, yeah, I too really enjoyed reading this section and had forgotten a couple of things and was like delightfully reminded of them. Like I, I knew that there was an upcoming part having to do with knives that had like delighted me the first time I read it, but I forgot what it was. And then I was like, oh yeah, it's juggling and all of the precision in the blades and then how they collected all the ingredients for the bula bays and all i just i it is just relentlessly charming and to me i just like i can't get enough i'm all in you know ian i've got to say i'm very glad that she said that word first oh yeah because that's one of those words that i look at and have no idea how, how to, to say pronounce, it. which is usually me i am 98.7 percent of the time pronouncing things wrong on the show <laughs> um, I'm the oh, and so now we're going to rely on you as our yeah. As so our, don't, um, wait, like, say it again. I do know Heidi. how to say shots enough to pop. I do know how to say boulevards. <laughs> I Bula there are okay. many other things that I don't. I do not know how to pronounce in real life. Like like banal. Is that how you say it? I've always said it banal in my head. Well, people say that people say that differently, and I like I grew up hearing banal. Okay. And I'm trying to, and it's, I've heard banal a lot, I but I don't know banal. if it's a, yeah, and I don't know if it's a regional thing or what it is, but. I thought, okay, um, so I thought that the double L in, in that word was pronounced with a y sound. So it's bouillabaisse. It oh, is. So that wrong? Banal. Yeah, I mean, no, I think that that's right in France. So just kind of like <laughs> if you go to, if you go to, to England, they call, um, a fillet, a fillet. Really? It's true. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like they call it like a chicken so, fillet. Wow. Yeah. I, so, well, I mean, th- yeah. this is the, this is what we do in countries where the language is not our own. Like they do that to English words too. So, and if you order, if you want English muffins, they're just called muffins there. <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. true. And yeah, I yeah. find that like, that's like so charming to me. I just like to go to the store and buy muffins. <laughs> <laughs> Bethany and I are, are, are hoping to go to England in the spring. Oh. And so we're kind of saving up and trying to set some money aside. And now I'm going to begin my diary of things that I need to remember mm-hmm. when we traverse across the pond. Yep. And, and never uh, don't want to make napkin. a fool of ourselves. I was just going to say, you know, different. the napkin thing, right? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's some things. Yep. Uh, some things that I know. Um, 
I'm reading this book right now called Get Ready for It. Right. The Car. Oh, I'm intrigued. It's about the history of the car. What's it about? It's a wonderful <laughs> book. It's actually it's a it's an amazing book. Um and loving it. And there's a whole chapter about Detroit becoming, you know, like the center of American automobile craft. And uh like Ian, I'm in the middle of talking about this, and Ian just got up and walked away. Like he, he did. He's like, like, I don't like care. Boring. I don't care. I just don't <laughs> care. I just lost you in one ear and I had to go like make sure nothing was wrong with my system. So anyway, uh, Detroit becoming the like center of the car universe, really not just the American car universe. And, and you know, you know how like all the, the carnivores, the, sure, the carnivores, which could mean a lot of things. Um, uh, the, <laughs> so distracted now thinking of all the different things that carnivores could be tied to, could be tied to like Carnies? carnivals and eating meat, all kinds of things. Um, so anyway, this is like being Detroit on the internet. The, like it just like opens a tab and you're so no, exactly. <laughs> okay. So you're reading a book called The Car. So, yeah. It's about the and automotive about, it, inter- this, industry. Well, it, not so much. It's about the art form of the car, but okay. there is a part where it talks about Detroit becoming the center of the, the car universe. And you know how we get like all these fancy French names of cars, right? right? Cadillac, Chevrolet, uh, all these different names like that. It's because the French settled the Detroit area. And all those that are the names of like different explorers and different people of French ancestry. And they were, and the whole thing is like Americans at the time in like 1905 thought that like the continent, the European continent was like cosmopolitan and where civilization was. And I mean, it's true, but they were all about trying to like bring that, like reinforce that in America leading up to the 20s and all that. So that's why all of these early car names have these like fancy European names, even though they're like, Chevrolet is like GM's car for the every man, right? But right. it's like Chevrolet. That's so interesting. Um, and whereas Ford, Ford was like Model T, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and we're only going to sell that for 30 years. And now we just make um, names up off the top of our head. Right, exactly. Well, and I exactly. think that that is a really good segue back to the book because that that issue... Exactly what I was going to say. Okay, go on. You say it. <laughs> no, 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 you do it. Go okay. ahead. Go ahead. Go well, ahead. we're on the same page. We're like twinsies on this. And probably Ian was yeah, thinking exactly. the same thing because that's directly referenced in the reading about the inferiority complex that the Russian can the Russian soul has about Western right. Europe and the imitation of European culture. Uh, and that, and, and in the book, they make a direct link between that and this like push towards industrialization to become a major world power uh, that led to where they're at right now, which I thought that was really fascinating. Hmm. Well, we got, okay. We got to talk about that. We got to talk about some other questions that I have and we got to talk about uh, Ian's um, confusion. Before we do that, though, we've got a sponsor this Ooh. this episode that we need to we need to share. Say more. And this sponsor is is a mutual friend of, of all of ours. It's our friend SD Smith. Because I, I'm not sure if you're aware of this. Did you? First of all, did you know that the Green Ember has sold more than a million copies? What? I am not at all surprised. Sam, Those books, Sam, are you it's a million man. plus selling Green Ember series. Yeah. So so so. He has a new book coming out. It's a new series, an entirely new series. And the first adventure is coming out very soon. It's called Jack Zulu and the Waylander's Key. It's an enchanting adventure in the tradition of Tolkien and Lewis. But also, I'm, I'm really into this, this, whole, like, this whole thing here. Also, Spielberg and George Lucas. Cool. So it takes place in the 80s. It's a fantastical journey that launches in rural West Virginia um, in that decade, which is, of course, when... Uh, Sam was kind of like coming of age. It's got a half Appalachian, half African kid who is trying to escape the town he sees as kind of like defining his small and what he feels like is a sad life. But then, Ian, get this, in true Spielbergian fashion, (laughs) he discovers a gate hiding a city between 12 realms and finds out where he truly belongs and a surprising and satisfying adventure for kids. So, this book is uh, the the pre order is October fourth, so that's yesterday from when we're recording. So that pre order has already launched, and it officially releases on November fifteenth. So you can go to jackzulu.com to get more information to sign up to like sign up for the pre order. He's got a bunch of signed copies he's giving away. I think the first two thousand copies of the pre order are signed. So get in on that. But uh, one other thing, 
Sam wrote this with his son, Josiah. I was just going to say. Which yeah. is an awesome part of this. So like their whole operation is a true family affair. Um, Josiah does a lot of the business stuff. Josiah is... There's two Josiahs here. One is Sam's son, who he wrote this book with. And then there's also his brother, who is, uh, is a great guy and does a lot of the business stuff and the operation stuff. Um, I can tell you that my son read one of the early copies and he loves it. And if you have kids who, you know, read The Green Ember but are getting a little bit older, or maybe, you know, were like ready to hear a story from Sam that had people and not animals in it, I mean, this is going to be perfect for you. So jackzulu.com, that's J-A-C-K-Z-U-L-U.com. And um, we're going to be talking about this throughout this month because... Um, this is a great book and it's, it's a great new series and Sam's a good friend of ours. And, and we know that a lot of you love his work and love that series and your kids do too. Uh, so definitely, definitely please go check out um, this series. And, you know, we're all about books here. And when a new book from a great person comes out, that's also a great book. We just, we want to shout that out and, and help spread the word. So we're honored to, honored to be partnering with Sam and Josiah and Josiah uh, this month as they launched this new book. So check check out Jack Zulu and the Waylanders Key, which in my for my mind is just it's a great title. Oh yeah, it's got some great '80s artwork on the cover, and um, Ian was definitely alive in the '80s. Yeah, for sure. So of all yeah. kinds of memories. So, so he, yeah. Uh, do we? Do we? No, nah, never mind. I won't make that joke. Okay, so let's talk about. Uh, let's talk about um, a gentleman in Moscow. Do we want to just talk about Ian's question right away, Heidi, or should we save it? Um, I don't know. I'm I'm up for that. I'm up for talking about it now. All right. So let's <laughs> let's just do that. So Ian wants to know what the heck is the conflict, the conflict, or the problem? Yeah. Is that how you you you're Yeah, I mean, I think the it, first two books, it was very obvious, right? We're talking about, <coughs> excuse me, we're talking about the death of a culture, talking about imprisonment for the count, even if the cage is gilded, um, and then there's this this sort of lingering or overhanging suicide notion that's been going through his head, and um, but then in this this new book, in book three, we've done a time leap. He's now pretty firmly ensconced in useful work in the hotel. Um, he's made friends of all of the employees. He has a life. And I'm struggling to see like this. It didn't feel like there was a lot of conflict of the sort that we encountered in the first two books present here. And so I guess where my mind goes is, all right, so what's driving the story forward now? Um, and where's the next Where's the next like motivating impulse going to come from for the count? What's the next challenge going to be for him? All right, Heidi, take it away. Okay. Um, Solve Ian's right. problem. <laughs> um, I wish I could. I think that you're putting your finger on a problem inherent in a novel like this. Um, and, and that you're talking about, in the story, a man who can't go out and make things happen. Things have mm -hmm. to happen to him. Um, unless the novel changes. Like the other option for that is... Um, something like Solzhenitsyn when, when things are relentlessly happening to the character and, and the action takes place in the inner life of the character. Right. But that's not the kind of person that the Count is. Or at least he's um, pretending not to be convincingly. Right. He's not. And this is what I mean. There's been some discussion on the Facebook page about kind of the Russianness of this novel again. And one of the things, one of the ways I think that the novel isn't truly Russian in the sense in which we think of Russian novels, like the great Russian novelists, is that that is the strength of the great Russian novelists is mm. to take a story um, and make it about the person and not about what's happening out here, even in right. a story about axe murder. Right. Yeah. Like even in crime and punishment, the story of crime and punishment is the story of Raskolnikov's inner life, even though it's about an axe murder. You think that'd be more interesting than Raskolnikov. <laughs> Turns out it's not. And that's one of the whole points of the story. Um, but in this case, so much of the writing and the action is taking place in the hotel. Right. And the count, even though he's a gentleman and has like an introspective quality to him. He's not like a Russian philosopher. And, um, and so this, this, that, I mean, that's the problem tolls has is once we get past the suicide, uh, impulse, what, what then, 
Um, and so I think that there's a lot of focus on in this section on, um, on, on what's going on in Bolshevik Russia, a lot more uh, emphasis on kind of historical forces and the Count's resignation. To me, when, what he says to Osip is so powerful when he says there's a difference between being uh, resigned to a situation and being reconciled to it. And the implication is he's not yet reconciled, right? But mm. he is resigned. And so what do you do in, to create action in a space of middle-aged man who can't go outside that's just about him being resigned? Mm. Yeah, And I, I think Tolls writes it really, really well, but I think you're asking exactly the right question. And I think we're kind of, as readers, supposed to grope, grope through that and grapple with that because mm -hmm. he's still the gentleman and he is no longer in despair, but yet there's just these long years that he has to fill somehow. And so we're, we're reading about like the filling of those years without the fulfillment of the count. Mm. That's well put. I think every story is kind of like, like if you break down all every story, this is the question that you should be asking all the time. So what you're going to get sometimes is that conflict or that problem is like super there in your face, right? Like you're just very aware of it and you don't really have to question it. Sometimes you get it stripped away and it's on purpose. And then you're trying to figure out, well, what does it mean that this, that the problem or the, or the conflict is being hidden from us? Because that's a choice that's being made. Sometimes the author runs into the problem of like, I'm at this point in my story. This is very super common in, uh, in movies and TV shows. I'm at this part. I'm at this point in my story and I know what's going to happen in a hundred pages but I don't know what's going to happen between now and those hundred pages. Right. And it, it feels like they're stretching to get there and they're not so much making the choice to hide their problem. They just don't have a problem to live up to the moment mm -hmm. that the story is, is, is kind of living in and putting you through as a, as a reader or watcher or whatever. So Heidi, I'm curious, do you think this is obviously not the first of those three things that I said. And it seems like it could be either of those other two. Like he is a very good writer. And so he is able to carry us through those scenes, even as he's kind of like sort of drifting along because he doesn't know what the problem is, or he's purposefully sort of concealing it. Which of those two things do you think mm. it, it is? If you even accept, like okay, accept for the, the sake of conversation, of that, yeah. just accept the premise of what I'm saying. <laughs> I think that he's, it's, writing about he's still writing about the becoming of the count in a very i think a very compelling and profound way because these are kind of like the years that maybe we're all in i mean you are less middle-aged than i am especially ian but like the i would definitely be in the years that if someone was to like make a movie out of my life, they'd be skipping these years. <laughs> like, um, they, they put him in a sentence several years later. <laughs> right. The next thing that happened after That's Heidi people did have mid midlife the crisis. same thing all day, every day for years and years and years. Right. Um, and somehow manages to feel like she's living a fulfilling and meaningful and contributive life. Right. Um, that I think is middle age. Like he is more of an example than an exception in that. And these are really important years in anybody's life, but for the, for the best of us with the most exciting life, like your mid to late forties is just kind of like the count, right? You find something that you like and you do it and you, you have these moments of transcendence that really involve just like a really good recipe with some friends late at night over a couple of good bottles of wine and, and, and then people come and go and somehow show you that you're stagnant. Like, I think that moment is so powerful when, so when he takes Sophia in and she reveals, she in her freshness reveals to him that he is becoming kind of an old fuddy duddy to use yeah. the earlier term. That, that scene stuck out to me too 
but my question was, is it maturity or calcification? I think he, it's probably both. It's probably both. Hmm. But there's also a series of setup here that like, we're not done with this section. Like we're in the, we're reading the middle of it. He's get, he's he's obviously laying the groundwork for some kind of, for something. And we don't know what it is, but it seems pretty clear from the structure of this section. So I think I'd say it was the second, David, of your three options. Ian, what do you think? Um, I'm trying to get them all in the right order. So I can't be relied upon to put a number to it, but the one where you said he's intentionally concealing, I think. Yeah. That was um, number two. That's number two. Okay. Yeah. I, so what's running along under the surface for me, the more I think about it is a question about human freedom and, um, and it's, but it's put differently than it is in the first two books. Um, first two books is about f- physical freedom, like whether he can leave the hotel or not. And, and whether that, um, whether he has the corresponding mental fortitude to be free intellectually while being imprisoned. And, um, but now it seems like he has, he's found a way to, like you said, Heidi, resign himself to his scenario and has found in his morning exercise, in the size of his rooms, in his pursuits at the restaurant, has found a way to be free. And then Sophia shows up. And one of the things I loved about that scene is she's everywhere. All of a sudden his rooms feel tiny. All of a sudden he can't turn around without a kid looking at him and saying something funny, right? Like it's, it's, um, it is triggering. Well, yes, I'm sure. (laughs) But also, also it's, it's clearly impinging (laughs) on his freedom or on the manner of freedom that he has been able to secure for himself. And I can see Toll setting us up to ask the question, well, what is freedom actually? What's true human freedom? And is it possible to be free without being bound? And what kind of binding is good for a soul? And it seems like in Sophia, we have the beginnings of an answer to that question or a suggestion maybe that the kind of human freedom that, um, that involves being bound to a person who is necessarily a limit on, on your free exercise of your own will is true, is true freedom. Um, so yeah, that, those are my it, thoughts. It, there's a bit of dramatic irony in the, the two women that like play a part in this section. And I'm not even going to, I'm not really going to count Nina. Right. Who, her role is that she leaves her, her child there, but we have um, in and out. Yeah. We have, Oh wait, what's the actress's name? Why well, I'm, I'm going Yeah. Yeah. So we have her return. And then departure, and then we jump back in time, and there's a return and a departure. And it strikes me how, like, it, it, there is dramatic irony in having these two female characters show up in this section the way that he does. Because to your point, uh, Ian, this little girl is like freeing, but in a way that's like it, it's not physically freeing, right? <laughs> You know, it, it's locking you down. Well, it's, I guess it's yeah. making demands of whether you. she it's, will be freeing. I think is maybe one of my questions because um, right now she right. appears to be. A it's limitation. setting her up to possibly yeah. right to for for that for ex, the acceptance of limitation to be a freeing thing. Mm-hmm. It's appropriate that we're talking about this the week when a new book by Wendell Berry comes out because that's like his whole thing, right? That when you accept the limitations that you have, um, that the universe puts in front of you, you're more free. When you try to overcome them, you become anywhere from uh, unhappy to evil. Mm -hmm. And then you have Anna who has this like, she has this, what seems like freedom, the ability to come and go. And she, you know, offers him this, you know, something like he offers him some excitement and some um, whatever words you want to use in a way that is very contrary to what this little clinging child offers, right? Um, I just find that the, the the contrast of the two to be interesting, especially because I don't mean to put too fine a fine a point on it. The kind of relationship that Anna and the Count have is like, in theory, anyway, a child producing sort of relationship, right? Like that, in theory, right? Yeah. Like I don't think that's lost on tolls here in putting them together, and but yet she comes and goes, right? And she's 
there's a bit of glamour about her and the question of her own the degree the length to which she's going to go to maintain that glamour and be realistic about herself and her future and as she's getting older and like as the times are changing around her and some things are just not her fault right and so uh-huh. she's trying to figure out how to cope and so she's living through something that's similar to what the count's living through but different and so tolls is putting these complicated relationships together and and then you've also got these three old these two other uh old friends of his in the I don't mean like old because they're old men yet, but that they're old. That they've been friends for a long time. That work in the restaurant and in the hotel with him, and so you've got these different relationships that he has that are putting different demands on him, physically, emotionally, financially, all those sorts of things. Right. But they're all very different. So what's going to happen when they all collide? And that's I think one of the things that he's setting up for us here. A little long winded of what I was trying to get at, but Heidi, do you have any thoughts on Anna's role in this section? Um, yeah, I do. I, I really, I'm rethinking casting this section into, um, thinking about in terms of freedom, like Ian brought up and it, I think it really works, especially with the, I am going to come back to your Anna question, especially with the, um, the question of social forces and, um, and, and, the limitations on individual freedoms coming out of communism, which is a main focus in this section. It's brought up many times. And uh, and the reasons given for that and the impact psychologically on the citizenry and on the whole nation as a result of the limitation of freedom. I think that 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 question of freedom works like really, really well for this section. So now I'm just thinking about it in terms. And I think Anna fits into that because Mm. one of the, you know, one of the ways that we're spotlighted on her is, is her failure or her loss of her vocational success, right? which she essentially has no control over. And in that way, she become they become she becomes part of that. What is it that they call it? The is it the Confederacy or the yeah? There's a he uses a word for that. like the club somehow. And there's listeners yelling it at their speakers right now. So forgive <laughs> me that we can't remember. Um, but that idea that of both the Count and of Anna that everyone under this, everyone inside of this hotel, everyone in under this regime. And then maybe by extension, there's more of a cosmological kind of human, more universal statement that nobody has as much control as they want to have or think that they should have over their life. And like Anna doesn't, she doesn't fail in her job because she's not good at it. Mm -hmm. Um, She didn't even get her job because she was particularly good at it. Right. And and so she's part of the sweeping inevitability, which is another question of 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 this section. And I love what the count I love the argument that the count has in his head when he's, you know, in the middle of the night drinking his brandy, when he's questioning having his imaginary conversation with Nina. And he he says the forces are not inevitable. But they are very, very likely, right? And I think that that's kind of maybe one of the contemplations of this section. Mm-hmm. Um, these things that that the contrast between kind of this this Bolshevik idea of the inevitability of history and forces moving inexorably towards some desired goal, mm-hmm. um, and and that's the whole Bolshevik platform, right? Like this is going to happen, so let's make it happen now. And 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 the count is feeling that happened, but also rebelling against it in a certain way and claiming back a measure of human freedom. And, and, and I think that the, maybe the contrast that you bring up, um, and, and the focus on freedom is really right. And I, and I, I think that that works out with Anna, both individually and in her relationship with the count, that's something they choose. It's a consolation in their life that's governed by these external forces that they choose for themselves yeah. and they become more and more free, um, in that relationship as they finally start to tell the truth to each other. Um, I thought that section was about storytelling was really lovely. Super um, I love his obsession with the freckles on her back and looking for patterns and, and this, like uh, this 
cosmic kind of patterns that he's looking for in her freckles. I just think it's really sweet. Um, and as their relationship grows closer, they can't really build a life together, but they can in a way choose something and build something that's just theirs in spite of these external forces. Mm. Ian, to this point in the story, what do you think we're supposed, or how do you think we're supposed to think of that relationship? Well, I, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I like what Heidi was saying. There is definitely a tension between the two characters. Um, I would almost call them foils, um, literary foils, because because of the difference in their circumstances. She is apparently free to come and go, and he is obviously not. Um, but I also think that they are unified in that the movement has used them both. In the early stages, it uses the count and his people as a symbol of everything that that needs to be overthrown. Um, and in the beginning, they love her and make her a poster child. And then after the chasm in the middle of her career, it becomes clear that while her deep husky voice makes her sound like a woman of the people, I guess we'll prop her back up again, right? And so in a sense, she is similarly powerless and similarly used by this movement. Um, and so I, I like what Heidi said that that their relationship is an oasis of choice and therefore of freedom for the two of them. But it, it does go back to what I was saying a minute ago, though, in the context of Sophia about where real freedom comes from, um, because, because I do think it comes from commitment in, in Toll's mind. And whether this relationship is going to contain any actual freedom is a very open question in a situation where there really can't be any commitment traditionally understood that in a way that Sophia steps in and takes up space and, and makes demands on his time and on his emotional energy and his attention. Um, Anna doesn't and can't. And so um, I'm interested to see where he takes that uh, romance is not the same thing as love. So we'll have to see if love develops, I guess. Yeah. I think the, I think it, it to this point, it's not real. The book's not real precise in how it wants us to respond to them. Mm -hmm. Because you don't get a lot of moments with them, and it's hard, so it's hard to really know how to interpret the tone of their relationship, the, the tone of the book towards their relationship. Yeah, and and there's a lot of like clever, like table talk, you know, like at the beginning of the book when they're first meeting each other, and they're like kind of having that witty repartee. <laughs> and then I guess there is like I don't know what else you call it, but like pillow talk, right? <laughs> that Heidi was referring to earlier, and I can't decide whether those conversations actually end up making the relationship feel more empty because it's almost like they're playing or only able to verge on intimacy or whether they're meant to actually be like um, tastes of like yeah. positive tastes. Of so I, it's hard for me to know exactly how to think of like how the, and I don't mean like, that whether Tolls is making a moral judgment on like their relationship. Right. I just mean like the tone of how we're supposed to like think of it in terms of what it's doing for them. You well, know? and her lie um, that's uncovered in this section, right? Where the story that she told about her background is, was totally false. Um, I wonder what that's supposed to be about. I mean, she, clearly she thought he was acting. And so she responded in kind, but he wasn't, he wasn't acting. He well, told her a it's, true story. It's, it's about funny that. You, right. Exactly. It's, it's funny that you mentioned you mentioned her voice earlier because the the thing about them is if you put the two of them together, they'd be exactly what Hollywood would want yeah. because he is, he has what she does not have. Mm -hmm. She, ha she's glamorous and beautiful and can walk up and down the staircase. Well, she can walk right? down the staircase. But, <laughs> walk, she, right, she can walk down the staircase. True. She's not yet learned how to walk up at, at least alone, but, but who has? she's a presence, right? Exactly. She is a presence. Yeah, when you walk up alone, you just trudge. Um, <laughs> when you, when, um, and as Lord of the Rings has taught us, sometimes you also trudge up together. One of the things, though, about her is that she, when she opens her mouth, people are like, oh, that's not what I expected, mm -hmm. right? And she doesn't have the eloquence, but he has the eloquence. So if you put them together, they become exactly like what you'd think you'd expect a glamorous actress to be he's got the voice and the eloquence the, the diction he speaks in like these long luxurious sentences and can entertain anybody and you put the wrong you put the the quiet reserved person at the dinner table next to the count because he's going to open help them open up right 
And so in a way, the book seems to be setting them up as like, not just foils to one another, which I think is perhaps true, but also like it's suggesting that together they are, there's a, there's a force about them together. The problem is we just haven't had a lot of moments with them together to really know how the book wants us to think about them. I think it's a, I think the relationship is a little bit, like, I don't know that I necessarily think of it as a hopeful thing. I think of it as kind of like, maybe, maybe this is more of like, what do you call it? A rush, like a, the test of each person's um, taste for this sort of thing. But I think of it as kind of a little more like uh, sad than hopeful. Mm. So I'm curious, Heidi, what do you think of all this? I think that the limitations that we've been talking about of the Count's life dictate his relationships. And so, for example, his love for Nina, he has like a deep and abiding affection, almost a fatherly affection for Nina, but he doesn't, he's not her father. And she is, she has been swallowed by Russian. She's been swallowed by the movement. So his Mishka, his best friend, has been swallowed by Bolshevism. Like, and so they're both true believers off doing their thing uh, in this world that has absolutely gutted the Count's lifestyle. And so he doesn't have a friend. He doesn't actually have a child. And then he doesn't, to your point, by extension, he doesn't really have a lover. He And so that, that is, I think, necessary to the story that every, in, in order to make the poignancy of the story work for us as readers, all of these relationships have to be less than what they should be, and yet provide something that's better than nothing. And I, I think in, I, I don't think that the book is like to your point, David, that you just made, I do not think the book is um, asking us to indict them for their fornication at all. Like, I think it's just saying that um, it's more than a casual encounter, but it's not what it should, could, or ought to be because the count cannot have that with the limitation well, of his life. And it's clear that at first, you know, that first scene, he makes it all like like a scene from a movie, right? You talked right. about like that that doesn't actually right. happen. And I think he's trying to do that to to create this like sense that maybe of allure or glamour of the relationship right. or something like something dreamlike about it. But then what you begin to realize is they actually they actually come together not out of like it's not like pure like libidinal desire or something like right. there's something that they both are missing that causes them to come back to one another. Mm-hmm. Like they drift apart and then they come back because there's an emptiness, you know, they're trapped in their circumstances and in their limitations. And so they come, they keep coming back to each other because there's a gap. There's something, there's a chasm that, that for whatever reason they feel like the other person can fill. But then the, but what's interesting is that it's, it's, it's like only little tastes and is the, is it that they recognize that if it's actually, there's actually more than it doesn't hold up and it, it, that they, they are afraid that it won't actually fill them or, or what, you know, like, I think there's a lot of questions about why, why that, why they don't test that more. Now we'll keep reading, <laughs> but um, that's, you know, I, I, I think he, I think the way he presents the relationship is really interesting from a dramatic standpoint because he kind of, makes you think it's one thing, but then it kind of really is something else when you think about it. Right. Which is what the count can do. Like that's, that's what he can have. And it's, it's always a lesser, a lesser good, but he's not sleeping with every woman who's walking through that revolving door. Right. Like there's, as far as we know, we, we skip a lot of years. It's true. (laughs) We do. Um, Yeah. um, I think you're right. Yeah. There's, there is a sense in which like he can't, have marriage and children, but he can have an attachment to this woman. He can have a, a deep and abiding love and affection and formative influence on these specific children. He can't have the old rapport with his friends, but he can write letters from afar and somehow know what 
Misha's going through. It's just there, mm-hmm. there is so much like the last section was, I think, all about loss. And this section is about resignation. But I really like the connection with human freedom and limitation. Um And I think that really fits too with the idea of resignation in the sense of like the count was determined to have a good life. He is determined to be happy and he keeps finding ways to be happy, even though it's not the robust human life that we might wish for him. And, um, and so I, I have, I, I really like the connection with that kind of overlaying that question of human freedom on top of this experience of resignation. And I think they fit together really well. Can I ask you guys a, a question? I'm, this may be related. One thing that I, th- I thought about a lot during this reading is the, the constant dis- lengthy descriptions of what, for lack of a better word, I'll just call craftsmanship. So whether it's, um, it could be something as small as him noticing someone's skillet opening a bottle of wine, like when the giant, you know, opens the book. He's like, that man opened a bottle of wine way better than I thought he would be able to. Or you've got um, making like the like page along descriptions of making a dish or how people were chopping food or um, the, the, the craft of being a waiter. Um, there's like, there's just over and over again, there is talk of craftsmanship, of skill, of, of doing things in a particular way. And so here's the basic question. What's the big deal with craftsmanship and skill and stuff in this section? We talked a lot about how like in the last section throughout this book, there is a lot of talk of wine and there's a lot of talk of, of things that are classy, right? Like bougie stuff. But this isn't to me about being bougie because he's beyond like being in, like it's beyond being interested in things that are bougie. And it's, it's moved into this territory of craftsmanship of like how these things are done and how something that's bougie gets made or cared for or curated or presented or whatever. And the notion of craftsmanship is something I'm kind of obsessed with. I think about all the time. And so I'm curious if you guys can kind of spend the next 10 minutes talking about this for me. Yeah. I think that's a really awesome question. Um, I noticed it as well. And it it goes back to the thing Heidi was saying. I do think it's related. Um, She said we, he doesn't have as robust a life as we might wish for him. And I think in the context of, never having, never being able to leave this hotel and, and not being able to take a wife and father children and all of that. That's certainly true. But I do think Tolls is verging at least on the suggestion that um, human life is full period. Um, no loss can make it less full. No imprisonment can really steal the thing that is human life. And I think the craft is one of the ways he's telling us that. Um, the triumph of Emil as he, as he holds up is what is it? Green onions or something like that instead of his knife by accident and sends the Bishop packing from the door of the, of the kitchen. Like um, these moments are something that regardless of whatever restrictive regime oppresses us cannot actually be stolen. Um, And so, yeah, I think the, the craft in, in all of its minute detail is a stand in for, I don't know what you'd call it, human ingenuity, but I think I'll just call it life with a capital L, um, which springs up out of, out of everywhere all of the time. And maybe one of the things going on in the count is his ability to see it, to recognize it, um, which is an issue of focus, right? It's a mindset uh, problem for him. And having taken part in the Boyarsky and, and taken a role there, he's now intimately aware of, of this hotel as an organism, that is living and that's creating its own life all the time. Um, I loved, loved the description of, of his work and of the restaurant's work in the context of Napoleon and preparing for a battle. That was fantastic and elevating it because the battle happens once and then it's over and the result is decided. But this, this war takes place every single night and there is a, there is a life, there's a life happening to the count. And um, we might think it's, it's impoverished, Certainly the regime wants it to be impoverished, but it seems to me an open question whether it truly will be an impoverished one. And it's, it's largely because of the craft that you're pointing to. I think that's really well said. I also just as a homage to tolls, like his, I'm always just so impressed with how he writes about craftsmanship. Um, It's like the craft of writing, describing the craft of something else. It's like these double layers of 
brilliance. Um, and I think that's one of my reasons why he's one of my favorite authors is that, um, he writes with such like tenderness and precision and honor to like the work of someone's hands and the care that they put into becoming good at something. I challenge you go somewhere Watch somebody do something that takes skill mm-hmm. and then try to describe it and like write one page describing it. Try to do that in so a way that is hard. both going to capture the steps, the, the actual activity that the person is doing while also making it poetic and capturing the essence of the thing that they're making and then making it like an experience that captures the imagination. It's, it's incredibly difficult and people that do it well make it easy. Okay. That's all. Go on. No, I, just I think to that's tell all. People that yeah, do that. It's really hard to do. Yeah. Go to a coffee shop and write about somebody making a latte, and just like, yes. or go to a construction site and and write about somebody making a nice, like making an actor building that actually looks good. Like you're, and have fun. Yeah, and then so tell me how much you. This actually it. story time with me, and it, it, you can cut this if it doesn't fit. But it, so we recently had our kitchen remodeled, and we hired a guy who's who was just getting started with his own business building custom cabinets, um, and he was awesome. He was very, very good at what he did, but he was in our house and we worked from home and we couldn't just pick up and move. And so this guy was a part of our family for six months in the house all day, every day. And he figured out early that I was interested in what he was doing. And so he would like three, four times a day, call me over to explain some minute detail of how hard it was, what he had just done. And it wasn't, he wasn't beating his chest. It was just sheer delight in the process of pursuing his craft. And there was this one, this one part of our Island where he built in a, like a shelf uh, and the the countertop comes all the way out over it. And we can put, you know, cookbooks underneath it. And it's really beautiful. But the way that he chose to join these things together involved hammering a piece of a different colored wood down into the top of this board to make it expand and hold on the top of the counter. And he polished it and engraved his initials in it and made it completely beautiful before then covering it with a countertop and no one would ever see it again. And I thought that was such a beautiful image of exactly what you're talking about. Like he took the time to make literally something that that is not a part of the finished product. Mm -hmm. Gorgeous. I took a picture. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, So what you're, what you're saying is totally true. Like I, I, it not only is it difficult to describe, but it is, it is by nature inspiring to watch Mm -hmm. someone pursue something with that kind of, of passion. And back to the earlier point about life happening and springing up out of dark places. Um, we're also given to understand by our author, this is happening in, in the rest of the culture as well. Uh, despite the, the onslaught of Bolshevism, culture is coming back. Jazz music is infiltrating. Um, you know, the, the wine labels are back again. I mean, there are some things that can't be repressed and Mm -hmm. they might even be the things that we don't consider to be of ultimate importance. Maybe Tolls is challenging that. Maybe he is saying that the label on the bottle of wine is of ultimate importance. And it goes back to that, that idea of craft and and passion. Right. I think that's right. I think that one of the reasons why Tolls focuses with such care and precision on craft, um, he does it in all of his books. Um, this one, probably most of all. Uh, but I think that he does that partly because he just loves loves to write it. Like he just, it seems like there's this joy in the writing of it. Like that, I the juggling, the knife juggling scene just to me seems like gratuitously, which I don't mean extra to the story. I just mean like the writing of it is so elaborate and enthusiastic. There's this like joy, this effervescence in the writing of those scenes. Um, and like, he keeps finding just like the perfect word. Um, yesterday we were reading a poem in one of my classes and it was actually Paul Lawrence Dunbar's, um, I know why the cage bird sings. And there's a line in there that talks about the, um, that the, the light is like a stream of glass. And one of my students said, stream is the only word that could work there. Like it's the only word. It's like the mot juste, right? It is the just the right word. And um that is like I think that Tolls does that over and over again to the point that the pitch of the writing gets so high, right? Um and it he might hold it maybe like a little long sometimes. Maybe yeah. It but he does that seems like out of it's like very forgivable to me because it seems like it's not to your point it's not boasting like look Mm -hmm. how good a writer i am he's just like look how cool juggling knives is exactly yes 
Um, cool and building I love that. Yeah. I love that, especially in a book about Bolshevism, about you know collectivism and the loss of these like localized crafts um, in the name of trying to build a. Um, you know, the Bolshevik ideal was to build an industrial society that has no individual skill. No, the, the point is the collective skill, not the individual skill. And, and a gentleman in Moscow is like a direct attack on that, in my opinion, um, not necessarily on communism, although certainly on communism, but more on the idea that the individual craft and the quality of a thing doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And like this book seems to be this clarion call of like juggling knives is awesome and a good <laughs> wine deserves a label. Yeah. And, 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 and there's a certain kind of food that will awaken the evening and make a relationship go better. Like just like accept that it's not about status, right? That's not, it's not about being an aristocrat in the sense of for the sake of the title, but for the story and for the humanity of it. And, and I think it really captures that throughout the whole novel and certainly in this section. It really captures the, the idea that culture is craft. And like to preserve culture, you have to preserve skills and craftsmanship right. and have people and like preserve the people that know how to do those things and can pass them on. We've, you know, we've talked about this in past episodes. Um, and, you know, we talk like this is an age of what you could call culture war. I mean, our age is, but I'm talking about like in the book, like the age of the Russians, the right after the Russian Revolution, there is this sort of culture war going on, like for the soul of a nation, not unlike probably every age ever. But I think there's a big difference between like fighting a culture war and trying to preserve or create a culture through craft, through craft and skill and beauty, you mm. know? Um, and I think this is a book that really like, points to that to the those differentiations and that's going to come into focus even more i think because i think the notion of like what makes something worthy of preserving is something we're going to keep coming back to in this book i mean i think about this i think about this question all the time like even in terms of like my vocation or the bookstore like i sometimes i think about like writing is obviously a craft so the question i always have for myself is on the one hand, I'm trying to like a bit at a time when I have time become like a better writer and a better reader and those sorts of things. But also like, what is the craft of owning a bookstore? Mm-hmm. I'm kind of like consumed by this question. I have like a little independent bookstore and I'm trying to figure out like, is it a craft? Like, is is it craftsmanship? Is curation a craft? Hmm. So I think about this all the time. Like, if it is, what does it mean? And if it's not then what am I doing <laughs> is well, if it's not, is that are there some people who are like called not to be craftsmen, but to be craft craftsmen, but to be curators of other people's crafts. And like, is it a lower, a lower, but necessary calling? Is it as equally a higher calling? Like if I end up not ever really writing the things that I want to write, but I spend my life trying to curate things that other people have written, is that still a high calling? And like, does that, or is it even if it's not a high calling, does it matter? <laughs> you know, um, or is it, or is like curation just kind of a skill? Uh, um, like, you know, is hospitality a craft? Like, all these questions are things that I think about all the time. And uh, this book has brought them into focus for me, or not into focus, but brought them into my out. Sometimes I think about them consciously, and sometimes I put names to names to them and make them conscious. And sometimes it's just kind of like under the surface and subconscious, and I'm kind of like, you know being anxious about it. But then books like this bring it to the fore, like give make me actually put words to to the to the inner conflict and inner debate. And this isn't like a question. It's just, you know, me right. kind of saying mm-hmm. what this book makes me makes me think about. I think for me, it's a little bit of a different contemplation on the personal level as I read this because I feel a different inner conflict, but that's just as intense, which is I want, I have like a multiplicity of craft, right? And I'm a woman, so it's my job in my home. Like that is, that is, like I am the keeper of the culture of my home, right? I'm the Penelope. Like I am, that's my job. I don't have a wife to do that for me and I wouldn't want (laughs) one. Like it's me. And so 
I keep the recipes going. I cook a meal every night. I homemaking and all of that. And I also have a craft of my own because I, I am, I am writing something and it matters to me a lot, but I feel a constant tension on what, where to put my energy all the time, where to put my time. Cause to say yes to one thing is to say no to something else. And that is just the reality of being an adult human in the world who cares about and loves many things. So I think for me, when I read this book, every time I read this book, I want to cook something I never cooked before. I want to make something I've never made before. I want to like, there's books like that, that inspire me in terms of the craft, but I still feel like I want to go and juggle knives, so to speak, and, or like make a cheesecake or whatever. But then I also want to write about it. So, um, I kind of, that the books like this do the same thing. They inspire, they awaken a longing in me to participate in crafting a culture and, and, and weaving a culture. Um, but I'm, I'm not always sure how to do that in the most redemptive, productive way. Yep. This book has had me thinking about Anthony Bourdain a lot. Hmm, Go on. Um, and maybe it's just because there's a new book coming out about him and it's controversial and. The, his estate and his family and stuff like that are not happy about it. And there's been some stuff online. So maybe he's just already on my mind, just somewhere in my subconscious. But he was a guy who was like so committed to a form of craftsmanship and like skills. But he was also, like you, Heidi, interested in so many things. Like what Anthony Bourdain really wanted to be was a novelist, right? Like he wrote several crime novels and he wanted to be a writer. And you see that in his books about cooking and his memoirs and and you see it in his shows the way he writes the way they wrote those the, the scripts and stuff like that and he was interested in introducing people to all kinds of new things and sometimes that multiplicity to use the word that you use tidy is like a, a real thing of a real sense of turmoil i think or it's born out of a sense of turmoil and you find people like the count then turning to like it's the relationships that carry us and like become the fiber of that multiplicity. I think like we have all these interests and, but it's the hospitality, it's the relationships, it's the people you share those things with that become the fiber of that holds the multiple selves together. Yeah. Right. I like, that. and I think, I think that's what this book is starting to show us is like, you can love the wine, you can love the food and the skills and, and the knives and like, the the art of being a waiter and all these different sorts of things, but ultimately, it's it's who you share those things with that gives them something, uh, or who you help, sh- or when you can help people share them with other people. Right. Like I think you know he feels very takes very seriously his role as a waiter because he's helping craft an experience for somebody. To, and sometimes, you know, it's it's that it's a first date, it's an anniversary, whatever it is, you are participating in that, and like that's the work of a chef, right? You, you're creating an art, but you're also creating an experience that people are going to share. And um, I think this book really gets at that, at the way that it's the relationships, it's the people that create that, that that like are the fiber to the to that multiplicity or to the really love to that. the sort of to the to the things that motivate that multiplicity, right? To the loves that that come out of the the, the multiplicity that is within a person. And I think all three of us feel that feel this in a big way right. right like we feel like we i bet if we talked about it for 15 minutes we could be like yeah i saw myself doing 10 different things like any of these 10 things i could have done all those and any single one of those i would have been happy and i would have probably and then there's some things i'd be like nope i don't want to do that like i could never have been happy doing that because i would have been looking at all those other things and like i think for people like us there is also a sense that learning to be content is also sometimes mm-hmm. hard because even if you're doing something you love there's the other thing that you're not doing that you also love and so being committed to a craft you have you can only choose to be great at so many crafts right maybe it even goes back to the earlier conversation about freedom i love what you're saying but i it's and i see it tied not but i i see it also tied to that question of human freedom like i could do anything i want i could i can do if i wanted to take up knife juggling there's nothing to stop me other than to your point the relationships but well, once you lose your right, hands exactly. it's tough, but. um other than the relationship the the proper ordering of loves that 
that is a limit to my freedom, but also the only conduit to being truly free. Yeah. And, and that comes shines really through in the novel as, as he's now given and somebody new to love. Mm. And, and so how is that going to both expand and restrict his perception and his lived experience of freedom? Yeah. Yeah. Just to, to dovetail right onto that. Um, I think, well, maybe this is, maybe this is a personal comment, but the specter that hangs over a lot of people, my age in our culture, I think is the specter of habit. We're told that babies, by, by manipulating our habits, by sufficiently dedicating ourselves to self-improvement, that we can become something and that our happiness is tied you to change that the thing, world, man. Right. You can be happy if you just decide to go ahead and be happy. And um, I'm not sure ultimately that that is, that that is true. And I think Tolls is commenting on that in some ways when he introduces Sophia, because the cult, the, the count has habits. He's got plenty of habits and they've actually been a tether to sanity. You could probably argue, right? His morning constitutional, it's a, it's a tether for him. And now it's impossible because Sophia is literally standing where he's going to do pushups. <laughs> Right. And so I'm so, I'm so eager to, to, to find out how he discusses this question. Um, to what extent is habit forming something that is in service to your relationships, which are then the conduit to happiness and how much is it in service to yourself and reaching for a kind of freedom that ultimately is not going to satisfy you. Um, but yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's really good. Uh, we pretty much have to wrap this up now. We um, haven't solved I mean, all of the world's problems yet. I have, way, I have a lot more existential questions. <laughs> okay, here we do. Let's do this. You just, just start listing some existential questions. I'll write them down and we'll come back no, to them in the future. I don't want to do that. We'll see how they emerge in the book. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's just, um, Ian, just hold on. Let's list um, Heidi's existential <laughs> questions. You will alternate as she lists them to keep up. I'll write the first one, you write the second one, because I feel like there's gonna be a lot of them. And to get to to keep up, we'll have to just, you know, well, go back right. and forth. I'm ready. This is this is really exciting. I'm finally gonna get answers. <laughs> well, I we didn't promise that. We just said we were gonna write your questions. <laughs> that down. is true. Your questions will be cataloged. <laughs> <laughs> a true philosophy. And, and addressed and addressed at the earliest at our As earliest convenience. Community. That's true. That's what friends are for. Addressing your existential questions at <laughs> earliest convenience. <laughs> Ian, any final thoughts? Any questions? Anything else that you want to, you know, get out there for the as we get into the rest of book three? No, I don't think so. I think I'm ready to go keep reading. Heidi. Same. All right. Well, don't forget, if you head over to jackzulu.com, you can pick up a copy of Jack Zulu and the Waylander's Key, which is the first book in the new series from S.D. Smith and his son, Josiah Smith. You can also sign up for their newsletter and they've got some signed copies and a number of things like that over there. So thanks to them for partnering with us. We are excited to partner with them this month and super excited for them to, to release that book and get that out into the world. And of course, to have some copies at the bookstore. Don't forget to head over to closereads.substack.com to sign up there for bonus content, including Heidi's monthly essay, some things I'm working on, and of course, the bonus uh, podcast episodes uh, going through East of Eden right now. Pretty soon here, we're going to be announcing our next long book, um, bonus book, HQ book, whatever we're calling it. I should, we need to just come up with an official like name for it. But pretty book. soon we are going to be, like pretty soon we're going to be announcing our bonus book. Yeah, there it is. Heidi just I said like it's bonus book. I like alliteration. And uh, big bad bonus book. Perfect. I was going to say uh, badass bonus book, but we could do big bad. Well, there's a, the A thing there, be kind of like it, it almost like there's alliteration, but it, you know, it just, it's distracting from the alliteration. I think you're right. Big bad works better. Big <laughs> bad bonus book. So yeah, closereads.substack.com for Close Reads HQ, where we are going to announce that soon and where you can get access to those things. I think that's about all. Well, what do you what do you got to to uh, to pitch to plug, Ian? Oh, it's I, every time we come to a plug, it's the same thing because uh, over on my other show, we read very very long books. So uh, we're big bad yeah, books. big old bad books. We are reading uh, Les Mis, uh for short by Victor Hugo, uh, and that's pretty fun. The discussions are oh forty five minutes or so, um, just tackling some of the longer passages that are a little difficult to get through and trying to draw connections into the character-oriented plot passages of that story. Hugo's a great novelist. He is given to flights of fancy, very romantic in places, 
Um, so we're wading through some some heady Reminds language. Reminds me of somebody I know. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a really fun time. That show is called How to Eat an Elephant. <laughs> and then as always, you can find you can find more from me and from the members of my family at centerforlit.com, where we do all sorts of things, uh, curriculum products and book discussions for grownups and kiddos. Nice. Heidi, anything you want to plug? Well, this weekend, I'm going to be out in Virginia at the Circe Regional Conference. Um, but by the time this episode drops, it'll be over. So I'm hoping that many of our listeners will be there and come introduce themselves to me. I'd really like to meet you all. Um, yeah. And then next week, I got to write my column. It's my craft. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and we, I don't know if, by the time this is up, we may have announced it already. We are going to be doing a um, a live bonus yes. episode for the subscribers. It's going to be a spooky themed <laughs> Q&A plus fall autumn reading episode. So we're just going to do like a live Q&A where we're going to... You guys can send in questions and we're just going to hang out and talk about stuff and it'll be for bonus for the subscribers. So um, It'll be for bonus. You, I, I, yeah, it'll be a big bad bonus. <laughs> oh. The... I don't know. Uh, Hallowed Halloween. I don't want to do it. There's so many lame, <laughs> spooky season things. Somebody out again there. is just yelling, yelling at you. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we're gonna do a live episode, and you can come hang out with us. And this is gonna be, uh, it's, it, if this it's gonna be the week of this episode going up. So if you haven't seen this announcement on Closer's HQ or on Facebook or something like that, head over there, and you can and you can make sure you're signed up and get access to that at the ex- exact moment. I don't want to say the time and the date because I don't think we have officially finalized the time, but um, I think we've tentatively finalized the date. But you'll just have to you'll just have to go check it out. So it's not the live bonus episode; it's the undead bonus episode. The undead, Ian. Thank you. That's so good. Thank you. Yeah. Very good. Nice. That was. Who would have thought? You know. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I'm writing this down. Under my list of Ian's ideas. Right next to Heidi's existential <laughs> questions. Ian's, Ian's ideas, ideas Heidi's existential not questions. to use. Not to use. Don't use undead. It's terrible. I love undead. No, it's, it's great, but you said. Yeah. Uh, well, and with that, for Ian Andrews and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Bye.